This podcast recounts true crime events that contain adult themes. The content may be graphic or explicit, and as such may not be everyone's cup of tea. Viewer discretion is advised. Also, spoiler alert. A calm neighborhood street is seen as cheerful music plays along in the background. A paperboy delivers a newspaper as the camera shifts to the recipient home. The camera shifts ever so slightly to denote a somewhat first-person view as it inches closer and closer to this house. The music shifts as the second floor's middle window is singled out. A man faces a bathroom mirror, a red substance splattered over his face and hands. He stares at himself intensely as he washes his hands of the substance. He opens a suitcase and pulls a garment bag from it, throwing his old clothes and jewelry into it in its place. He takes a shower and then completely transforms, cutting his hair, shaving his beard, and discarding his glasses for contacts. He surveys himself in the mirror, pleased with his metamorphosis. He closes the suitcase and leaves the bathroom. Pictures of the man and his family are seen as he walks through the house, stopping to put away a toy sailboat left discarded in the hallway. As he descends the staircase, he stops to tie his shoes outside the archway to the living room. The camera pans out to reveal the slaughtered remains of the family, left scattered in the living room. The man remains unfazed and leaves the house, picking up the newly delivered paper as he goes. He crosses the road and continues up the street, with the scene then cutting to the man aboard a boat as he looks back towards the shore and pushes the suitcase into the body of water. Thus begins Joseph Rubin's 1987 psychological thriller, The Stepfather, and the true story of John List. This is Crime Scene. In late 1971, neighbors and friends of the List family became concerned after the five family members had not been seen around their small New Jersey town in almost a month. Despite this, lights inside the house had burned brightly day and night until they burned out one by one. The three children's schools and part-time jobs had been notified of their extended absence in November due to an illness in the family. Their milk, mail, and newspaper deliveries had been discontinued, and despite the family's reclusive nature, something just didn't feel right. Police had previously been called by a concerned neighbor, but an outside search of the premises had found nothing. The eldest daughter, Patricia's drama coach, Edwin Iliano, went to investigate on December 7th and was found waiting on the front doorstep of the house when police arrived, requested by a neighbor who had assumed Iliano was a burglar. He yelled out her name, but no one answered. While the next few moments are disputed by eyewitnesses, the bodies of 46-year-old mother Helen, 16-year-old daughter Patricia, 13-year-old and 15-year-old sons Frederick and John Jr., and 84-year-old grandmother Alma were discovered in the ballroom of the mansion. As police investigated the crime scene, one person was noticeably absent from the carnage, the father, 46-year-old John List. John Emil List was born September 17, 1925 in Bay City, Michigan to John Frederick List and Alma Barbara Florence List. An only child, List grew up a devout Lutheran and became a Sunday school teacher. In 1943, he enlisted in the Army and served in infantry as a laboratory technician during World War II. He was discharged in 1946 and then enrolled at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, where he earned a bachelor's degree in business administration and later a master's degree in accounting. While at UM, he was commissioned as a second lieutenant through the ROTC program. This came in handy as he was recalled to active military service in 1950. While serving at Fort Eustis, Virginia, he met Helen Morris Taylor, the widow of an infantry officer that had been killed in action in Korea. 
Liszt and Taylor married on December 1st, 1951 and moved to Northern California with Helen's daughter, Brenda, accompanying them. The Army then reassigned Liszt to the Finance Corps, where his accounting skills could be utilized. He completed his second tour in 1952 and went on to work for an accounting firm in Detroit. He then worked as an audit supervisor at a paper company in Kalamazoo, where his and Helen's three children were born, Patricia in 1955, John Jr. in 1956, and Frederick in 1958. List rose to general supervisor of the company's accounting department. And while it seemed that Lists had it made as the ideal American family, things were not as they seemed. Helen grew increasingly unstable. An alcoholic, she had also contracted tertiary syphilis from her first husband. And I'm not sure if she was aware of this or even doctors knew of the effects of advanced syphilis at the time, but her condition worsened regardless. Brenda married and left the family to start her own in 1960. The remaining members of the family moved to Rochester, New York, so that John could take a job with Xerox, where he eventually became the director of accounting services. In 1965, he accepted a position as the vice president and comptroller at a bank in Jersey City, New Jersey, and moved the family to a 19-room Victoria mansion in Westfield, nicknamed Breeze Knoll. In 1971, List was unexpectedly laid off from his job as an accountant. This predicament could not have come at a worse time as List was dealing with the financial hardships related to the upkeep of the family mansion, as well as Helen's worsening condition. To avoid breaking the news to his family, List traveled to a nearby train station each workday and read newspapers until returning home in the evening. I'm unaware if this newspaper reading was related to finding another job, but maybe that would have been asking too much. On top of that, to avoid defaulting on his mortgage, List skimmed money from his mother's bank accounts, who had moved into the attic apartment of Breeze Knoll. Eventually, List ran his naive mother dry and he began to panic about how he could face the humiliation of accepting welfare assistance. He realized that this option was unacceptable as it would expose the long list of lies he had weaved for himself as well as for his family, and he would be ridiculed by others. That along with his father's authoritarian teachings regarding how to care for your family nagging him in the back of his mind, List was convinced that his only way out was to start anew without his family. On the morning of November 9, 1971, List shot his wife in the back of the head as she had her morning coffee. He then climbed the stairs to Alma's apartment where he shot her above her left eye. When Patricia and Frederick returned home from school, he shot both of them in the back of the head. He made lunch and then traveled to the bank where he closed out all of his family's bank accounts. John Jr. had a soccer game scheduled that afternoon, so John traveled to Westfield High School to watch his son play. After bringing him home, he shot his son multiple times, ultimately killing him as well. John Jr. is the only member of the family that I know of to receive multiple shots, as misfire evidence concluded that this was due to him attempting to defend himself. List placed the bodies of his wife and children on sleeping bags in a line across the ballroom floor. Alma's body was left in her apartment, most likely due to her being too heavy for her son to lift. He then sat down to write a five-page letter to his pastor detailing his motives for the crimes, claiming the world had become too evil for him to endure, and he felt that he had to, quote, save their souls in order for them to get to heaven. It's worth mentioning at this point that Patricia had voiced interest in becoming an actress, an industry that was no doubt unsuitable to list for his daughter to take part in. He left the letter on his desk in the study and cleaned the crime scene. He then cut himself out of every family picture in the house and tuned the intercom system to a religious radio station and left. No one saw or heard anything from John List for almost 20 years. 
1987, Joseph Rubin was inspired by the story of John List to create The Stepfather, a psychological crime thriller in which a man murders his entire family and starts a new life in order to repeat the act with a new family. In a strangely odd twist, cinematographer John Lindley was hired last minute as a replacement for the original director of photography, who was arrested in a domestic dispute right before the commencement of shooting. The Stepfather premiered on January 23, 1987 and grossed $2.4 million at the box office. Entertainment Weekly ranked it as the 22nd scariest movie of all time in a 1999 list. The film gained a cult following and spawned two sequels and a 2009 remake. Y'all, this movie is a thrill, and not just because it's considered a thriller. It's well acted for an 80s horror film, and the characters' motivations are well developed. I loved the highlighting of how Stephanie dealt with the death of her father by rebelling in school, because these types of storylines I feel are mostly reserved for male characters, even though this type of situation affects all genders. The opening scene is brilliant, in my opinion, though I personally would have kept the blood out of view just so the living room reveal would be much more unexpected and shocking. I highly recommend this movie to anyone who loves 80s horror films and just enjoys psychological thrillers in general. While Rotten Tomatoes gives it an 88% certified fresh and Metacritic rates it at a 72 out of 100, I give The Stepfather an 8 out of 10 spooks for cheesy but effective scares. And you're probably thinking to yourself, Alyssa, you're getting into the movie way too early. What about the rest of the story? Well, Westfield was scandalized by the murders of the List family, as it was the most notorious felony committed in New Jersey since the kidnapping and murder of the Lindbergh baby. A nationwide manhunt was launched for John List, with hundreds of leads pouring in with no success. All reliable photos of List had been destroyed, and the family car was found parked at JFK Airport in New York City, but no evidence proved List had boarded a flight there. 18 years later, with no leads on List's location or fate, Fox's America's Most Wanted recounted the crime during its first year on air in May of 1989. The segment featured an age-processed clay bust of List sculpted by forensic artist Frank Bender, who was accompanied by forensic psychologist Richard Walter. The bust was sculpted based on pictures of List's parents, as well as a psychological profile created by Walter for the killer. According to Murderpedia, quote, Bender professed that List would not be vain enough to wear contact lenses. However, he said he would have worn a pair of glasses different from those he had worn before the murders. He said they would be a pair with dark, thick frames. Bender and the psychologist theorized that List would do this to hide, in a sense. He would want to disguise the fact that he was a failure and appear more important than he really was. Less than two weeks after the broadcast on June 1st, List was arrested at a Richmond, Virginia accounting firm after a neighbor he had previously lived near in Denver recognized the description and alerted the authorities. The bust was almost an exact match, all the way down to the thick framed glasses. List had traveled by train from New Jersey to Michigan and then to Colorado after committing the crimes. He settled in Denver in early 1972 and took an accounting job as Robert Peter Bob Clark, who he later claimed was the name of one of his college classmates, although the real Bob Clark asserted he had never known List. From 1979 to 1986, he worked as a controller at a paper box manufacturer outside Denver. While there, he joined a Lutheran congregation and ran a carpool for the shut-in members. It was within this congregation that he met Army PX clerk Dolores Miller and married her in 1985. The couple moved to Midlothian, Virginia, where List resumed work as an accountant until his capture. List stood by his alias for several months, even after he was extradited to Union County, New Jersey in late 1989. With irrefutable evidence mounting, including a fingerprint match with List's military records, 
He confessed to his identity on February 16, 1990. During his trial, List testified that his financial difficulties reached crisis level with his layoff from Jersey City Bank in 1971. A court-appointed psychiatrist testified that List suffered from undiagnosed obsessive-compulsive personality disorder and saw only two solutions for his situation, accept welfare or kill his family. On April 12, 1990, John List was convicted of five counts of first-degree murder but denied direct responsibility for his actions. Quote, I feel that because of my mental state at the time, I was unaccountable for what happened. I asked all affected by this for their forgiveness, understanding, and prayer. The judge, unpersuaded, countered, quote, John Emil List is without remorse and without honor. After 18 years, five months, and 22 days, it is now time for the voices of Helen, Alma, Patricia, Frederick, and John F. List to rise from the grave. His five terms were to be served consecutively, the maximum permissible penalty at the time of the sentencing. List filed an appeal on the grounds of impaired judgment brought on by PTSD caused by military service. He also argued that the letter left at the crime scene, essentially a confession, was confidential communication to his pastor and therefore inadmissible as evidence. A federal appeals court rejected both of his arguments. He eventually expressed remorse for his crime, saying, quote, I wish I had never done what I did. I've regretted my action and prayed for forgiveness ever since. John List died of complications from pneumonia at the age of 82 on March 21, 2008, while in prison custody at St. Francis Medical Center in Trenton, New Jersey. The New Jersey Star-Ledger referred to him as, quote, the boogeyman of Westfield upon his death. John List went on to become an archetype of popular culture as an example of a seemingly perfect figure that hides deep secrets. Along with his stepfather, List's story was recounted in 1993's Judgment Day, the John List story, and even went on to inspire the character of Kaiser Soze in 1995's The Usual Suspects. Ironically, Judgment Day cast Robert Blake to play List, who later went on to be charged and acquitted for the murder of his second wife, Bonnie Lee Bakley. List was also considered as a suspect in the D.B. Cooper air piracy case, as the timing of his disappearance occurred two weeks before the hijacking, multiple matches to his description, and reasoning that, quote, a fugitive accused of mass murder has nothing to lose. However, this theory was later dropped. In 2008, John Walsh, creator of America's Most Wanted, donated the famous Bender bus to the National Museum of Crime and Punishment in Washington, D.C. After its closure, the bus was moved to the Alcatraz East Crime Museum in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, where it is still housed to this day. In a note of tragic and dramatic irony, the Breeze Knoll House remained empty after the murders until it was destroyed by an unsolved arson assailant in August of 1972, nine months after the bodies were discovered. A new house was built on the property in 1974, but among the destroyed remains of the original house was the ballroom's stained glass skylight. It was rumored to be a signed Tiffany original worth at least $100,000 at the time, $625,240.88 in 2020. If the rumors are true, the skylight could have erased John List's debt entirely with money to spare, potentially preventing the crimes from ever occurring. Thank you so much for listening to Crime Scene A. All of the information you've heard in this episode comes from Joseph Rubin's The Stepfather, FilmDaily.com, Murderpedia, Wikipedia, and of course, IMDb. The music you've heard throughout the episode is by my friend Colby. I'll include his SoundCloud in the description. And I'd like to dedicate this episode to the members of the List family, as well as to the memory and family of George Floyd, who passed away this week due to the gross negligence of four police officers in Minneapolis. 
Whether you are pro or anti-cop, the events of the last few years pertaining to innocent black lives proves that there is a serious flaw within the law enforcement community that must be addressed and handled if we expect to see any change result from it. We can't change history, but we can educate for the future. I'm Melissa Chester, and please be kind and stay enlightened. Thank you.